US businessman Dan Friedkin takes Redbird over. has recently made waves. MLB and NBA appear to be the lead. Ed Sheeran becomes Ipswich Township. Saudi Prince adds French side Chateau. NFL finalises new 11-year media rights deal with Amazon. In this episode, I look at how countries use investment in sport, mainly football and mega events like World Cups and Olympic Games, as a tool for nation branding, a soft power strategy that has come to be known as sports diplomacy. This can take the shape of sponsorship strategies or ownership investments. I'm Reese Lenarduzzi, and this is Sportonomic, a podcast sponsored by Athlon Partners. A £198 million transfer is not about football. It's about soft power. The colossal Neymar deal funded by Qatar Sports Investments shows how far governments will go to secure global influence. That headline and subheading were written by our guest today, Simon Chadwick. Professor Simon Chadwick is a geopolitical expert. He is the Professor of Sports Enterprise at Salford University, Manchester, where he is also a co-director of the Centre for Sports Business. He's also a senior visiting fellow at the University of Nottingham's China Policy Institute and is the founding director of its China Soccer Observatory. Insofar as sport continues to have global reach and football remains the world game, nation states are acutely conscious of the consequent power in the successful investment in sport. In recent years, it is notable that a variety of states have been using their financial power to invest in football, not for the sake of profit, but in order to improve their standing on the international scene. So soft power in simple terms is referred to as attractive power. And it is obviously the opposite of hard power. And, and hard power is very often synonymous with threats. And obviously an ex- in an extreme case with military action. And, and I think in this t- in this context, the word power is the important one. So power power is very much about getting things that you want. And and rather than using hard power, countries are increasingly using soft power. In other words, this attractive power. And and if I could give you uh, an example of of what I think soft power um, is, and particularly soft power in sport, I'd highlight an example which is. Um, the Premier Skills Initiative that's run by the British Council and the Premier League. And the Premier Skills Project is an initiative that helps teach people overseas to speak English through football. And so it's a great way of of, of engaging audiences to then start to help them to learn English. So great. You know, the world speaks English. So what, what's the consequence of that? Well, I think there are two consequences. The, the two consequences are when you're engaging in trade or when you're trying to cut deals or when you're trying to persuade somebody to do something, it's actually easier if they speak English. I think the second thing that I would say is, is, is that the Premier Skills Initiative is, is not just about getting people to speak English. It's also about communicating a set of values because there is a British way, we like to talk talk in terms of you know sticking to the rules and fair play and 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 so that you know that that is our set of cultural values and 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 whether you like them or loathe them, that's who we are. And so soft power is also about communicating that way of seeing the world. So to think in terms of uh, some some other examples, the most obvious one to talk about is the United States. 
you know, using some non-related examples, you think about the soft power of McDonald's or the soft power of Hollywood. You know, it doesn't matter wherever you go in the world, you know, you, you know, in, in, in the deepest jungles and the most barren deserts. And, you know, you meet someone and you say, ah, Hollywood. And, you know, you talk about the Matrix or Star Wars or you know, whatever else it might be. So Hollywood has soft power. And I think in the same way as, as Hollywood and, and McDonald's and, and Coca-Cola, the NBA basketball from the United States has soft power, has a soft power effect as well. So, you know, everybody knows the Chicago Bulls. You know, you go back to the 1980s in particular and through the 1990s, everybody had a Chicago Bulls hat and, and everybody knows Michael Jordan and, and you know, Michael Jordan is associated with Nike and, and people buy Nike products because of Michael Jordan. So uh, that is soft power. And, and, you know, there is an economic consequence as the result of soft power. And, and that is that, you know, through its association with, with Michael Jordan, Nike sells more training shoes around the world, you know. So there is a, an element of economic power in this as well. Using a more contemporary example, or, or if you like, a, a kind of real live example, one of the reasons that Japan wanted to stage the Olympic Games last year, but now this year, is, is to promote its domestic industry. So there are something like 70, 75 sponsors of the games that are Japanese corporations. And this has been really important to, to Japan because over the last two or three decades, economically, Japan has actually really suffered. And you think nowadays, more people talk about Chinese industry or you know we might have a South Korean mobile phone. Japan has actually fallen behind. And, and so what Japan is trying to do through the Olympics is, is to kind of convince us again and, and to project its soft power so that when we're thinking about buying a mobile phone, you know, we don't buy an Apple, we don't buy a Samsung. What we do is, we, you know, we buy a Sony, we buy a Japanese mobile phone. But otherwise, you know, there are countries like Azerbaijan are doing it. They're, they're trying to project soft power through sport. You think about uh, Russia is doing it. Saudi Arabia is trying to do it. And, and just to give you one final example in, in, um, for, for the time being, uh, Gazprom, uh, the Russian state gas company, or should I say corporation, um, is, is currently a major sponsor of the Euro 2020, 2021 tournament that's taking place, the football tournament. Now, Gazprom is, is involved in doing some fairly distinctive things, shall we say. So, for example, they are uh, they're engaged in gas exploration in the Arctic, which is uh, hugely controversial. They are involved in a gas pipeline project in Northern Europe, which the United States is very unhappy about and, and um, has even imposed sanctions upon Gazprom to stop this happening. And, and yet, in reality, most sports fans are not talking about these things. What, what most sports fans are talking about is, hey, Gazprom, they're sponsoring the Euros. There's even a Gazprom goal of the round sponsorship so you know you'll you'll see this content on social media on twitter on instagram and so it's not about it's not about gazprom degrading the natural environment in the arctic or gazprom being used by the russian government to create an energy dependency in 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 countries like germany instead what we're talking about is the gazprom goal of the round and that is soft power Soft power and sports diplomacy have been endorsed by scholars as legitimate strategies given it's a non-military instrument to compete with larger and more militarily capable neighbouring states. 
This is of course key to a nation like Qatar that desires to move away from oil dependency and has to compete with much larger neighbouring nations to which it is not viewed favourably. Definitionally, branding is to make a distinction between one brand and another. For Qatar, it is perhaps its ultimate struggle to differentiate and distinguish itself from its neighbouring countries. Qatar's headline showings of soft power through investment in football is the acquisition of and post-acquisition operation of European giants Paris Saint-Germain, PSG. Though it is impossible to disconnect Qatar's sports diplomacy strategies with PSG from its strategies with sponsorship, for instance, such as Barcelona or B in Sports the Broadcaster, and its securing of the World Cup for 2022. These are the soft power sports diplomacy pillars to support Qatar's wider aspirations of global legitimacy and to be a country to conduct business with. To highlight that these soft power strategies are intertwined, one article I read not only points to those aforementioned investments being connected, but additionally heaps together and puts them on par with the mid-1990s plan of Amir Sheikh Hamad, who recognised the need to shore up support with Western allies, allowing the US to create its largest military base in the Middle East, with the 2018 Munich Security Conference, when Amir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani proposed a security pact akin to Europe's 1975 Helsinki Accords. The Qataris acquired PSG in a less-than-ideal state in terms of football results, but have since managed to turn the club into one of the richest and most successful on the planet. PSG's image remains a priority because, in turn, it is seen that Qatar's image is the beneficiary. The importance of this for Qatar might be best measured by the size of the spend on players since taking over the club. Putting the likes of David Beckham and Zlatan Ibrahimovic aside for the moment, PSG paid both the number one and number two world record transfer fees for Brazilian superstar Neymar, a reported 220 million euro, and French wonder kid Kylian Mbappe, a reported 180 million euro transfer. I asked Professor Simon Chadwick to expand on and explain Qatar's sports diplomacy strategies as he sees it. What I what I would invite anybody who is listening to this podcast to do is to to. Uh either get out an atlas or alternatively going to Google Maps and and look at where Qatar is. Um, I think the first thing probably is that most people think, I don't know where to look. Uh, obviously, if you're using Google, it's it, it makes it easier. You're just putting Qatar, Google Maps, and, and away you go. But certainly in an atlas, people may not even know where to look. Um, and that is part of why, one of the reasons why Qatar is now investing in sport is because you know essentially this is a very very small Gulf nation, historically just desert, about which many people know nothing. Uh, now a lot of people know quite a lot about Qatar, and and that's the point. That's why they're staging the World Cup. That's why in 2019 they staged the World Athletics Championship. That's why in 2028 they're going to stage the Asian Games. They've got a MotoGP race. In 2017, they held the World Cycling Road Race Championships, 2015 World Handball Final, and so on, and so on, and so on. So that's why you would invest in sport, because now people like me in particular, I can say straight away, I know exactly where Qatar is, and, and I know what the country is about, and I know what it's trying to do, and that's the point. Now, when you do look at the Atlas, or you do look on Google Maps, you'll notice that it sticks up like a thumb into the uh, into the Persian Gulf, and 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 that thumb is is significant because Qatar is effectively surrounded by water. 
and and so in in that in that sense you know it's vulnerable it's got a coastline to protect but at the same time it only has one land border which is with saudi arabia so when you look when you look to the the west you see saudi arabia uh, one of the big regional powerhouses big sunni muslim majority if you look to the east you've got iran the other big powerhouse um big shia muslim majority uh, obviously the saudi arabians are allied with the united states and and more recently with israel you know iran allied with russia and china um, not forgetting of course to the north of 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 qatar you've got some really deeply unstable places you know so places like iraq and syria and and uh, lebanon you've also got nestling at the top there turkey uh, which is also um a big powerful country in the region and then you know in the middle of all of this you know strength and 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 military threat and instability sits sits qatar little old qatar and and so sport i think is a way of or qatar's investment in sport is a way of addressing some of those geographic and strategic vulnerabilities uh, that uh, that that qatar has and and what i found interesting in 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 qatar's case is that in in one sense it's kind of defending itself by investing in sport but in another sense it's also being offensive as well you know it's kind of small country big ambitions so those two things to get together i think sit sit very very closely with one another so if we take all of that together and think about the world cup the world cup has made qatar visible and relevant uh, so it's important to fifa it's important to countries it's important to key decision makers around the world and so that that gives it a certain level of protection uh, because by being a world cup host you know you've got big corporations investing into the country you've got countries investing into the country and so that may, this makes it less vulnerable it makes it less susceptible to invasion it makes it less susceptible to attack i think it's important to 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 stress at this point you know kind of a related uh, digression the biggest united states military base anywhere in the middle east is in qatar you know this is really important to keep in mind at the same time qatar also shares a gas field with iran and it has really great relationships with iran so you know suddenly when you start to say say these things qatar suddenly you know, is is a lot stronger and a lot a lot more powerful because it's it's got good, a good relationship with the united states but it's also got a good relationship with iran as well at the same time it's also got a really great relationship with turkey and sport has been part of this but of course you know they, this doesn't give qatar an identity it it doesn't enable qatar pr- to project soft power so what qatar has therefore done is to for instance in terms of identity you know qatar has a national sports day it's one of only six countries in the world to have a national sports day and what this means is is that everybody all over the country gets day off work and everybody is expected to play sport that day and and this is really well organized you know there are competitions all over the country you know there are fun runs this kind of thing and and so you know qatar has an identity as one of only six countries in the world that that has a national sports day that differentiates it but at the same time what qatar therefore is also doing is it's getting people to play sport it's creating a cohesive national identity 
it's it's trying to address issues around gender equality and differences between communities. And so there's a sociocultural purpose and, and a health purpose behind this as well. The other example I would give is, is, is Neymar signing for Paris Saint-Germain in, in 2017. Uh, at that time, the, the, the world transfer record was Paul Pogba, Juventus to Manchester United in 2016 for, I think, £89 million. And Neymar was signed by Paris Saint-Germain, owned by the Qataris, for almost £200 million. So you know, this didn't just break the transfer record a little bit. It smashed it. And, and I think it smashed it because what the Qataris uh, were trying to do, I, I think were two things. They were trying to tell the world something about, you know, this is who we are. This is what our ambitions are. This is what we aspire to. We want to be the best. Neymar right now is the best. And, and so there was a, if you like, there was some soft power projection in this because the, the Qataris want, want the world to know. They want the world to know about this country and, and what it is, what it aspires to, the resources it has. But there was a second element to this too, and 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 that is in in 2017, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, in other words, Qatar's close regional rivals, uh, cut off diplomatic ties with Qatar. Now, militarily. Qatar couldn't fight these countries. You know, it, it couldn't invade Saudi Arabia. You know, Qatar is a country with a population of, of less than 3 million. You know, Saudi Arabia is a country with a population of 35 million. It's, it's got one of the biggest armies in the region. You know, Qatar wasn't going to fight Saudi Arabia. It wasn't going to fight United Arab Emirates. But what it could do is it could use soft power tactics to build engagement with with not just other countries in the region, but countries around the world. And, and so that people would look at Qatar and think, well, you know what? You know, we, we, like, we like what they're doing. You know, we understand them. We like the kind of values that they have. Um, so they signed Neymar. And, and, and if, you look at, if you look at what was happening in Saudi Arabia and what has happened in Saudi Arabia, it's, it's the narrative about Saudi Arabia is, you know, they kidnap people, they torture them, you know, they kill Khashoggi in, in the embassy in, in uh, Istanbul. Um, when we talk about Qatar, we talk about, hey, they signed Neymar and Paris Saint-Germain. Whoa, you know, they got to the Champions League final. And, and so the narrative is very different about Qatar. And so that is how and why sport, certainly in the, in the Qatari armory, is a really important soft power tool you know, as opposed to military might and and um, and 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 using some of their very negative tactics that countries like Saudi Arabia historically have used to address some of the political challenges they face. Whilst the UAE with the City Football Group and Qatar with its investments in football are perhaps the ultimate examples of sports-oriented diplomatic strategies, China is most definitely worth touching on. The influx of Chinese investment in football over recent years cannot be disconnected from President Xi, his love of football and his vision of China winning a World Cup by 2050, and the desire of wealthy Chinese businessmen and their companies playing a part in delivering that for their leader. The wider goal is of course nation branding. Exorbitant amounts of Chinese investment have been sunk into football clubs around the world, but perhaps the biggest attempt of improving China's image globally through sports diplomacy tactics was how its domestic league rose to incredible heights in the last decade 
and was able to attract the likes of Hulk, Oscar, Tevez, and other top footballers. So high was the investment, it changed and inflated football salaries globally as European clubs had to stop their best players leaving for China. The football landscape in China has changed, and following some failed investment projects in Europe, whether China's state branding via sports diplomacy is or was a success is questionable. Simon had this to say on China. How, in a short podcast, can you characterize China? One of the, one of the things I, I always get told when I go to China is never pretend that you understand China or never pretend that you know China, because for those, those who are unfamiliar with China, it's just huge. And there are huge numbers of people there, 1.6 billion people, the, 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 the most populous nation currently on the planet. So what I'm about to say, I, I think, is a, is a generalization that hopefully has some relevance, but uh, it's always difficult to talk about China in, in specific terms. I, I would start by say, really saying two things about China. Number one, it wants to be the best at everything. So whether it's computing technology or financial services or engineering components or you know, making movies, China wants to be the best at everything. And keep in mind that people like you and me, Reese, we, we've grown up in an era where, you know, essentially the Americans are, better, are the best at everything. And, and you know, it's just you know, apart from cricket, of course. But you know, we we never quite got to cricket. But um, <laughs> but but essentially, you know, we, many of us you know, were born and brought up with you know the Americans are the best at everything. And and even in you know going back to Hollywood movies, we've already talked about Hollywood movies. In Hollywood movies, the American good guy always wins. You know, and that's just the way it is. And and so when we're thinking in terms of being the best at everything, China wants instead to be the best of everything. So China wants to be to the 21st century what America was to the 20th century, so to be the best at everything. I think the other thing that that, that China wants to do, and, and I guess we can start generally and say, when the world talks about China, China wants the world to say nice things. When we talk about America, we do, you know, let's have a hamburger and a Coke and watch, watch a, a movie. And you know, so we speak very positively. When we speak about China as a world, we, we don't speak, positively very often about China. You know, we, we, many of us actually speak quite negatively. And, and how this plays out in a sporting context, and to illustrate this, one of the things that I do with my students uh, very often is, is I say to them, okay, um, think about Brazil and think about Brazilian football and tell me what's in, in your head right now. And of course, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, great, you know, really skillful, really successful. It's really sexy. And, you know, guys and girls on the beach and sunshine. And you know, so when we tell stories about Brazil, particularly when we tell stories about Brazil through football, the way in which we talk about Brazil is really, really positive. And, and that's another reason China wants to be you know, on the scene and part of the part of the game. But being a, a little more specific about it, China wants to invest in football for economic reasons because it it wants to have it wants to have the biggest football industry, the biggest sport industry in the world. So by 2025, China wants to to have created a domestic sport economy worth 750 billion dollars. Um, right now, the global sport industry is, you know, there are various estimates, but there's a, a little bit of a consensus that current global sport industry size is $750 billion. So basically, China by 2025 wants to double global industry size. 
And with that comes, you know, comes jobs and exports and economic growth and so on. China wants to be the best at everything. Um, and, and, and instead of wearing Nikes and Adidas on our feet, you know, China wants us to be wearing Leaning or 361 or Antar or Peak on our feet. And they want us to talk about Peak or Antar in the same way as we do about you know, our Air Jordans. So that, that's where, where China is heading with this economically and industrially. Um, I think politically, we've already alluded to the fact throughout the podcast that, that the way in which people talk about countries, the way in which people um, view countries – the the opportunities that 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 being a high profile nation in sport can give you to engage in diplomacy to build relationships to influence how people see you i think china is 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 going down that route as well but i think one of the one of the the the, the specific things the very specific things i would highlight about china is is china's been using sport as a way of building economic and political influence in, for example, Africa. So China is engaged in Africa in, in, in a policy of stadium diplomacy. And, and what this effectively means is that China is, is building free stadiums for countries in Africa. So we got the African Cup of Nations coming up in Cameroon soon in, in 2022. And those stadiums in Cameroon have been built by the Chinese. And they do this in two ways, either free of charge or using soft loans. So free of charges, free of charge. You know, there you go. Half, half a billion dollar stadium for you. We, we're giving you that for nothing. You'll know that there's no such thing as a free school lunch. The other way is through soft loans, as I say. And, and soft loans are loaning money to countries at, at significantly below market rates of interest. So why does China do this? Well, in the main, China does this because it wants either exclusive access or priority access or preferential access to Africa's natural resources. So, for instance, the African Cup of Nations 10 years ago was held in Angola. All four stadiums used in the African Cup of Nations in Angola were built by the Chinese. And shortly after the tournament finished, the Chinese were announced as a kind of key strategic partner in Angola's uh, relationship with, with China. And Angola's biggest export is oil. And China needs oil. And, and so this kind of notion of stadium diplomacy, I think, is a really important one to China because that oil drives Chinese industry. Chinese industry creates jobs and, and exports. Those exports generate revenues. Those revenues help China, the, the Chinese economy to keep going. The Chinese economy, as it keeps going, confers political power on China. So that's how the dots are joined. For me, the, the most amazing one is in Sri Lanka. So they, so they loaned the Sri Lankan government a huge amount of money. Low rate of interest, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll pay, we'll look after you. And, um, but the terms and conditions of the contract were, were striking. So the Sri Lankan government defaulted. They defaulted on the repayments, which gave the Chinese government the legal right to, to basically take over that port. So now part of Sri Lanka is now part of China. The Chinese own it. And the Chinese can do what they want. So, of course, then you think the Indian Ocean, the Chinese are entitled to build a naval base there and they can send their, their ship warships there. And, and as you know, the Chinese and the Indians don't have a great relationship at all. 
So the Chinese, the Chinese are coming, boy. Now consider the United Arab Emirates and how it yields power through the following subsidiaries and stakes therein. The list is long. Manchester City FC. Melbourne City FC, Montevideo City Torquay, Lommel SK, New York City FC, Mumbai City FC, Girona FC, Sichuan Jianyu, Yokohama F Marinos, Troy is AC, City Football Academy, City Football Marketing, City Football Services, City Football Japan, City Football Singapore, City Football China, City Football India, CFG Stadium Group, and Gold Soccer Centers. Manchester City FC is certainly the golden child of the group, much like PSG for Qatar. The growing list of investments of CFG highlights that UAE is intent on soft power strategies and using sports diplomacy to brand itself widely as a legitimate and well-organised nation. I asked Simon to share his thoughts on the soft power strategies of the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates as a country actually consists of different states. So we obviously have, for example, Dubai. And I think the way in which Dubai has engaged with sport is different to, for example, Abu Dhabi, an, an, another one of the states within the United Arab Emirates. And just quickly on Dubai, I, I think Dubai is much more about raising the profile of the country and driving tourism and getting people to go and paraglide on sun-kissed beaches and stay in expensive hotels. And so this is why we know about you know, Emirates sponsorship of horse racing, Emirates sponsorship of Real Madrid and Arsenal and AC Milan. Um, I think the other part of this is, is for a time, Dubai was investing into, for example, rugby. So we know that, that at Dubai Sports City, there is, a, there, there is a rugby venue. And so this is one of the reasons why we've got Rugby Sevens takes place in, in Dubai. But I, I, I think Dubai has taken tourism more seriously than sport and it's put tourism at the heart of, of trying to drive change within the country. Conversely, I think Abu Dhabi has put sport much more center stage of, of what it does. And there are two sports in particular that stand out. One is, is, is motor racing and Formula One. And uh, some, some of your listeners will be familiar with the, the, the Abu Dhabi F1 Grand Prix. But what I find interesting about Abu Dhabi is, is, is the way in which motorsport has crossed over into tourism. So Abu Dhabi is home of Ferrari World, which is a huge theme park. And, and again, you know, the power of podcasts doesn't allow me to show images of this. So I would invite I would invite listeners to, again, Google Ferrari World Abu Dhabi and look at the pictures. This is just you know, incredible. So this is kind of tourism and sport and sport and tourism. Uh, motorsport in particular is really, really important. But what I think is 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 arguably more significant about Abu Dhabi is, is its investment into City Football Group. Most obviously that that starts with Manchester City because this was the the club that the Abu Dhabi royal family essentially invested into back in the late 2000s, 2008. 
But since then, what we know is obviously that the owners of, of, of Manchester City have created this global empire called City Football Group, which is relevant in Australia because obviously you, you have yeah. Melbourne, which is, is part of the family. You know, you go to Japan, you've got Yokohama as part of the family. Uh, there's a, there's a, a City Football Group franchise in China, in Chengdu, another one in India, in Mumbai. You know, I, I could, the, the list, you know, I mean, I'm, the list just goes on and on right. and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger by the month. Now, this is really interesting because I don't think it's it's currently it's not possible to make a huge amount of money from football because transfer fees and player salaries eat up the revenues that uh, um, that most f- football clubs across the world uh, generate. But if we look at City Football Group, and, and the other investors into the group, and they've come along subsequently. And then you look at where City Football Group is investing. You start to um, understand a little more where the strategy is going. So in 2015, China Media Capital bought a stake in City Football Group alongside the Abu Dhabi royal family. And, and it's unclear what the relationship is between these Chinese investors and the Chinese government. But what is crucial to remember is that in 2019, when City Football Group announced that it was going to set up a franchise in Chengdu in China, what few people didn't see was that Etihad Airways announced at the same time that they would be upgrading their fleet and and developing their services, um, flying into their Chinese hub. Um, which just co- happens to be in Chengdu, uh, the same place as the football club. So, you know, I, I think what you then begin to see is 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 that Abu Dhabi uses football. It's not just about winning games and acquiring talent. It's also about again diplomatic relationships. Um, you've got to consider also that in 2019, U.S. private equity investor Silver Lake also took a stake. In City Football Group, so in other words, the Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi royal family chose to sell ten percent to this Los Angeles-based Silicon Valley private equity investor. And when you look at what Silver Lake does and what it invests into, it invests into things like WWE and Facebook. Um, so it's in the business of digital and entertainment and sport. And so the game plan for City Football Group is, is not just political, it's, it's economic and industrial too, based around entertainment, sport, digital technology, lifestyle. And this is really significant. It's a really significant part of this landscape because Abu Dhabi and, and United Arab Emirates generally are what we would call a rentier state. So you know, the final lesson for today uh, is 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 rentier states. So you know, Abu Dhabi is a, a rentier state, and what a rentier state is state is 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 a state that um, is endowed with significant natural resources that confer upon that state considerable wealth. So, in other words, Abu Dhabi has money to invest that Australia doesn't, that Britain doesn't, that France doesn't. But what these countries very often seek to do is to use their 
wealth, in other words, the wealth drawn from, in this particular case, oil and gas in, in with Abu Dhabi, is to, to invest overseas to generate an income stream. And that income stream in, is then used domestically for very often in lieu of a tax system. So what you've got to keep in mind is Abu Dhabi, if you are an Abu Dhabi citizen, you don't pay tax, full stop. Now, of course, Abu Dhabi has to, you know, it still has to, um, you know, it still has to pay for the military. It still has to pay for roads and railways. It still has to pay for, you know, hospitals and, and so on. Um, and in very, very simple general terms, City Football Group helps to generate revenues that enable the citizens of Abu Dhabi to live tax free. That's, you know, that's a very blunt bottom line, and it's a little more complex and, and nuanced than that, but in very simple terms, that's how it is. So Abu Dhabi is doing things for political reasons. It's doing things for economic reasons, but it's also doing, and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this finally uh, to conclude because it, it kind of wraps everything together. It's also doing, doing this for soft power reasons. You know, where's Abu Dhabi? Does anyone know? Now, again, I challenge any of the people listening to this, if I was to give you a map right now and I say, you know, kind of pin the tail on the donkey, you know, put, put your drawing pin in the map where Abu Dhabi is, you know, I, I would challenge people to do that. And, and I'm guessing that even now many people possibly wouldn't be able to do it. But even if, even if people couldn't do it, they would still be able to say, ah, Abu Dhabi, yeah, F1 Grand Prix, Ferrari World, uh, City Football Group, Manchester City, Melbourne, you know, the Louvre. You know, the, the, the Louvre from Paris also has, you know, New York University, New York University, New York, you know, New York University, well, well known the world over. You know, New York University has a campus in Abu Dhabi. So you can see again how associating with the best, enticing through soft power tactics, you know, Ferrari World and New York University and the Louvre to, to have facilities and premises there. To hire Pep Guardiola, best manager in the world, you know, sexy football, really, you know, just incredible to watch. That's Abu Dhabi. So again, the way in which we speak about the country, the way in which we perceive the country, the way in which we engage with the country is different to you know, the way in which we engage with other countries, but also go back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, where's Abu Dhabi? You know, now everybody knows it. Questions remain about whether these soft power strategies have been successful in light of, for instance, the widely reported atrocious treatment of migrant workers in Qatar or reported instances of slavery in the case of the UAE. In an ugly sense, the success of the soft power investments of these nations in football is whether they are loud enough to drown out the noise of the atrocities associated with their nations. The paradox for Qatar is that before using football as a diplomatic tool, and winning the right to host the World Cup, the exploitation of migrant workers was not making headlines. Ironically, it's this active use of football as a diplomatic instrument that has shone a light on the issue and affected Qatar's image substantially. What a deeper dive into soft power sports diplomacy uncovers is that the image, perception and values a nation is trying to affiliate itself with will often not be the actual values of a state, but rather just the values with which a state would prefer to be associated with. Thanks for tuning in to our second episode of Sportonomic. Make sure you find the show, 
follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Next week, I'll be looking at cryptocurrency and non-fungible tokens in sport, NFTs. A huge thank you to this week's guest, Professor Simon Chadwick. Thank you to our sponsors, Athlon Partners. You can find further detail at www.athlonpartners.com. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter, at Reese Lenarduzzi. Sportonomic is an afternoon sport group production.